So I think I said this last week. We're, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, and uh, we looked at just verse 1 of chapter 4. And today we're going to look at the, the rest of the verses that kind of go with it, which is verses 1 through 3. And also just to keep orienting us, we're moving from lots of doctrine, lots of rich, deep theological truths that are you know, so wonderful, but that's, that's the, the basis for everything that Paul gets to do now in these next three chapters, which is in light of the, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has saved you from a child of disobedience to a child of obedience, here is now how you walk. I think I described it, the verse 1 as the thesis statement for the next three chapters. This is the summons of how to live the Christian life. And so today we'll see not just the summons to walk, but how do we walk it? What, what does it look like? What are the characteristics and qualities of the Christian walk? So turn your attention now to the reading of God's word, Ephesians chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word is not only uh, instructive and in, in, in teaching us knowledge and encouraging our hearts about what God has done for us in your son Jesus, but also a summons of how to live a holy and fruitful life in this time that we have on earth, a, a call to pursue Christ-likeness, to be more and more conformed to who he is and what he is calling us to, to be. So we pray now, Father, that this word uh, would touch our hearts, Lord, that it would uh, stir us up, that it would shake us out of a rut or dust, and it would draw our attention to how we are to live out the Christian calling and pursuing Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I was trying to think of some opening illustrations about sports or something that dealt with all the qualities that we see here, but it's kind of hard to think of a sports analogy that tackles these things like humility and gentleness and patience. Uh, I mean, athletes, especially at like the professional level, they they're not very humble, and maybe they have a right not to be, you know, humble, but I, I ran out of them. But thankfully, uh, we're reading the Harry Potter books with Greta, and I, I was reminded of somebody who exhibited all these qualities during a, a challenge, because this is what we are dealing with here. Paul is saying we're, we're going on a walk in this world. It's, it's got challenges before it, but you are being summoned to do it. You're being commanded to walk it, and you're, you're given guidance on how to navigate it. And you're given a goal of where you're headed, so you're not just wandering aimlessly about. But I was reminded of, and I'm sorry if you don't know the books or the movies, but I'm gonna spoil a few things, but in the, the Goblet of Fire, where Harry Potter's entered this huge tournament, he's got, all, he's got three challenges he has to get through. And the second challenge, he has to go down into the giant lake that surrounds Hogwarts, and he has to retrieve something to, from him, a treasure. And he discovers that the treasure that has been taken from him is his best friend, Ron. And there's a, a little rhyme that goes with it that basically Harry thinks that if he doesn't retrieve Ron, that the people that inhabit the lake are going to kill him. 
And when he finds Ron, he doesn't find just Ron, he finds the other contestants' treasured possessions, which are all people. There's one contestant who it's his, uh, her sister. There's another contestant where it's his kind of love interest. Actually, there's two of those. So there's two girlfriends, Harry's best friend, and a sibling. And Harry finds these people first. But then he's met with a, a struggle. He could have won the whole thing right there and then. He could have scooped up his buddy and taken off to safety. But he, he was nervous about what would happen to the other people because he doesn't see their contestants. And so he has this humility about him that he's not just going to win it, you know, take it all for glory and win it and just everyone else can sort themselves out. He had to be a gentleness about him, which we'll talk about what that means, but his actual spirit is stirred to care for the people that are also there, even though he doesn't know one of them. He has patience as he sits around, slowly realizing the clock ticking away, and even as other people come and take their contestants away, they're still the youngest little girl that was taken, the sibling of, of one of the contestants. Nobody's coming for her, and he's patiently waiting. And then he has to bear with all of them as he scoops up not just his buddy, but he also scoops up the little girl because her contestant, her champion, her sister didn't come for her because she got taken out. And so Harry Potter gets up and he's dead last, but he showed such qualities of life, such qualities of character that he actually ends up tying for first place in the event. And everyone's happy because Harry Potter always has to win. And if it's a stretch, I think we can all know about times when we've told ourselves or others, you know, it's not how you play the game, it's, you know, how you, or no, wait, it's not how you win, or it's how you play the game. I just dropped that ball too. But character matters. The content of our lives can speak profoundly to those around us. And that's what Paul's doing here. So he reminds them, first of all, from verse one, and I won't be here long because we just touched on it last week, but there is a calling upon Christians' lives. Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. He's going back to that same calling of God taking you from death to life. But he's calling us, he's reminding us not just about this calling that God's laid on our lives, but that we're doing something. We have to walk. It's a, an infinitive that's functioning imperatively. This is a command. You have to walk. You don't get to just be saved and then just stay there comfortable, safe. You have to step forward and start pursuing Christ. And we're to walk in a worthy manner. Now, we have to see here that the apostle is again laying down a foundation briefly of doctrine, right? This, he refers back to calling, but he's also now sent, pointing us towards a life lived. That if doctrine is the foundation of the building and the Christian house, then the life that we're called to live is the adornments. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, you and I are to live the kind of life that will adorn the doctrine. If you, if you truly believe everything in Ephesians 1 through 3, if you truly have taken into heart all the work, the lavish grace that Christ has poured out on you, if that is true and you believe it and you want to embrace it for yourself to cling on to it, then you have to start adorning that doctrine, making it shine out to the rest of the world, its power in your life. It's a, a general summons, verse 1, to an obedient and holy 
life. And that's what we really discussed last week. And the apostle usually develops his arguments this way. He'll start with some big general statement or principle like in verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then he moves into particular ways of doing that. He goes from general to the particular. In the church, we think of the holy life mostly in behavioral standards. You know, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from drunkenness, don't, you know, don't be a glutton, don't be a cheat. But isn't it beautiful and also maybe alarming that Paul doesn't start launching into that here? Instead, he points us towards these virtues of how to live. Not a list of don't do's, a list of here are beautiful qualities that you can live out because of the Holy Spirit that is in you. R.C. Sprawl said that these are really the touchstones of piety and godliness. So what are these touchstones? What are these qualities of the call that we've been called to? I'm going to list them out and then we'll go through them. But we're called to walk with humility, with all humility, Paul writes, and gentleness and patience and there's this long phrase bearing with one another in love and this first word humility was absolutely fascinating i wasn't expecting the, the the it's not every time that when you go to the greek like all of a sudden some wondrous depth comes out of it i mean we have faithful translations to convey god's word to you but every once in a while you do come across a word that we can't put all the content of what's going on there. We can't give all the history about what this word conveys adequately in our English translations. But this word humility in the ancient Greco and Roman world was not a positive trait. It was always pejorative. It was always a way to describe somebody uh, of debased and low character. In fact, uh, one uh, historian, uh, Latin historian, recorded that one of the emperors, when he was ascending into the throne, he did not pay the expected bonus to his bodyguards. And so he was dubbed as a man of low character. And the, the word there for low was the same word we have for humility. But oddly enough, even though these, the, the Paul would have been familiar with how it's being used in the wider world, why would he choose to use such a word like this to talk about a virtue for the Christian life, it's because the Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which would have been, Paul would have been very familiar with, they used that word to describe somebody who lowered themselves so that others could be elevated, who thought less of themselves. And they kind of flipped the script on the culture around them and saying, you know, there, there is a positive quality to what is happening that we, we could talk about. We could make that a virtue instead of always associating it with uh, a character flaw. And this boggled the ancient world so much that uh, Origen, one of the early church fathers, in his argument with Celsus, actually has to defend himself from pagan accusations and ridicule over the fact that Christians viewed this type of humility as a virtue. When Augustine, the ancient church father, was asked, what is the first step towards heaven? What's the first step you take on the walk of the Christian life? He responded, humility. This word here. So the person followed up, all right, what's the second step? And Augustine said, humility. The person's like, all right, third step, give me something different. And Augustine responded again, humility. 
Paul, writing to the Philippians, said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in all humility count others as more significant as yourselves. True leadership, true care for one another is doing that. That's what our church, you know, we're called to do is to view everyone as more valuable than ourselves. There's like a great illustration of that in, uh, and I wish Colonel Barry was here for it, but in We Were Soldiers, the movie with Mel Gibson, he's got his two lieutenants, you know, the big all strapping all-American guys, and he's having them do this really long run, and they're watching the two lieutenants, uh, Mel Gibson's character and his sergeant, and Mel Gibson focuses in on one lieutenant who's just screaming at his troops. He's shouting at them. He's calling them all sorts of names. He's trying to get them up this mountain as fast as they can so they can be number one. And the sergeant says, that boy just wants medals. But Mel Gibson focuses on the other lieutenant who notices one of his guys is falling behind. And he makes him stop. And not only is the guy falling behind, he's African-American. This is the 60s. The lieutenant's white. And he tells, he orders the young man to take off his boots to find out why he's limping. Why is he dragging the platoon down? And he takes off his foot and his foot was all torn up. It was bleeding. And so he makes him put on dry socks. He, make, he checks the rest of his feet. And then he orders the rest of his platoon, what you just saw me do, you do. You saw me be the lieutenant and leader and I got down on my hands and knees. I took off a fellow soldier's stinky boot, looked at something really gross. I didn't think that was too high above my pay grade. You do it. There is nothing too high outside of the Christian's pay grade. We are to count everyone as more of value. We're to put others' needs before our own because it wasn't too high a pay grade for Christ to do. He humiliated himself by becoming the creatures that he had created. He humiliated himself by taking on physical form. He humiliated himself by leaving the throne room of heaven to come down and get dust on his feet to sweat, to feel hunger, to toil. I mean, all of these things, when you think about what, what religion says that our God does this? I just saw a preview for the new Thor movie, and it's got this whole storyline now for the Marvel Universe of Thor, the God of Thunder, and he's going around, he's meeting other gods, he meets Zeus, he meets, I don't know, a bunch of other ones. But in the Marvel Cinematic World with the gods, you never see any of them being like intentionally gonna give up their thunder and their lightning. They're not going to intentionally give up their superpowers. They're not going to intentionally muck around with the little humans. But that's what your Savior did. That's what the real God did for you. That's the humility that he did. So if he can do that, surely with his power at work in us, we can humble ourselves to lift others up, especially those that he has gathered us to be with. But it's not just humility that we're called to. We're called to gentleness, and this word sometimes is synonymous with humility, so that makes it interesting. But it's the same word that Jesus used to describe himself in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Charles Hodge, the great uh, Princeton Presbyterian, said the most exalted of all human beings was the gentlest. And in our day and age, I mean, we, we want that, right? There's a word that's kind of popular in Christian circles and even maybe in society at large, but we want to be winsome. We want to present a really winsome way to engage people, to bring them in to the Christian faith. And sometimes it borders, though, on winsome as in 
We'll never say anything that you'll disagree with. We'll never challenge you. We're only just going to just keep saying yes or it's okay and, and get you into church. And, and sometimes we use winsomeness as, as a quality that doesn't actually have much depth to it. It can even be a, a little bit you know, misleading. And it's not biblical. There's no word for winsome in the Bible. But we do have this biblical command to be gentle to be tender towards those. And you see this exemplified in Christ's life, right? No more so than when uh, in the uh, passage in John where the woman in adultery is brought to Jesus, right? If you remember the story, she's brought to Jesus by a group of scribes and Pharisees. They've said she's committed adultery. They've caught her in the act. They are wanting Jesus to say, all right, well, kill her. That's the command of the, of the law. She deserves death. And instead, he famously says, he who, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And Jesus looks up and he looks at the woman and he says, where's all of your accusers? Because nobody could have done it. Everybody had some sin. None of them were righteous enough to pick up a stone and throw it at this woman. I mean, that's gentleness. That's what we think of the tender heart of Christ. But it was a gentleness with a purpose. Because what does he tell her then? Go and sin no more there's still a gentle, bold courage to how we are to live this life. And then he says we are to be patient with one another. And there's two ways that we can be patient. And the Greek here has two kind of meanings that go with it. It can either be remaining calm while waiting for an outcome or being able to put up with provocation. I should also add the words for gentleness and patience are the same words used in Galatians 5 to describe fruits of the Spirit. So you have to be gentle with people. You have to be patient with people. Even if they're trying to provoke you to get some type of response, anybody with siblings have known the old game where you can like just keep provoking them until they burst out and then you get to pin it on them. Like, you know, oh, mom, so-and-so hit me, even though you've been like nudging him and poking him for five or ten minutes. I mean, do, is that, do we be patient like that? How do we do that? Well, I think it is helpful that we remember that these qualities are associated with fruits of the Spirit. These are the qualities that the Spirit is at work in your lives doing right now. Even if you're awful at them. I mean, I've got Ruby. You've met Ruby. She's not a patient four-year-old. I don't know many patient four-year-olds. When we tell her to be patient, she says either I can't be patient or it's hard to be patient. And it's the most human response an answer I've ever heard. Because of course patience is hard. But it can reap really good rewards. It can reap relational rewards of being patient with your spouse over something. When you, when you are doing the classic miscommunication because you're both just different and you're patient and you walk through it and you arrive at the same conclusion or you get the same idea, you, your reward is you didn't get in a dumb fight about dumb things. Because those happen. We can get in silly fights as adults. Patience for children is, is hard as well, but beneficial. It's patient to learn about how to save up money to get something you want. Or it takes patience to get into a school you want. Or patience to uh, figure out what you're going to do with your life. I mean, all these things that we can teach you, that your parents can teach you, all these are good qualities. But then you have to extend them to others, because this isn't just about you. It's about how you interact with the saints that the Lord has gathered you together with. 
And then there's this last one, bearing with one another in love. This is the actual definition that was given by one of the premier sources, uh, dictionaries for ancient Greek. It says, literally, you put up with people. You put up, you put up with people. People that, like I prayed earlier, that are just different from you. I mean, when we think of diversity, it's in our culture, we usually just think of skin diversity and culture diversity or socioeconomic diversity, but we're all different. I mean, none of us, thank God, we are all different. But that means we may have qualities or things or mannerisms that we have, that we do, that could get under other people's skin. We have to bear with, we have to put up with people in love because definitely God has put up with you, right? How many times have you gone to the Lord in prayer over something and you begin it with, yeah, it's me, I'm here again, and it's the same thing? God patiently lovingly, gently bears with you. And that is not just an exemplary model for us to follow. He is at work creating that by the Spirit in your lives so that we can put up with one another, so that we can live with one another. But why? Why do we need these qualities then? Well, because we're headed towards a goal. And this is what verse 3 describes. So we're called to a walk. Verse 2 is all the qualities of the walk. And verse 3 is the goal, that we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul develops a sense of urgency here, eagerness. He does, he's driving us towards the goal because eagerness could easily just be translated as zealous. Are we zealous? Are we eager to maintain the unity that we have together? And we're called to, to maintain it maintain it. We can, uh, other words that can be used to, or to guard it or to keep it. I mean, you are literally, the description is you're watching over it. In the Greek, this word is used to describe the angel that is set out in front of Eden. He's maintaining it. He's keeping it. He's guarding it. There is something wonderful here that Paul's trying to say could be lost because of sin disruption, disunity. When we think of like the first Corinthians where it's the wild west of churches, I mean, they have got every single problem imaginable going on. I mean, they, that's what Paul's trying to avoid in Ephesus. Keep watch over yourselves as the church. Keep watch and maintain this peace that you have. But here's the thing, all these qualities of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, they almost seem too idealistic. Is it even attainable? What would it look like for us one of the, a great Southern Presbyterian, William Plummer, wrote a manual for his church members. And in the manual, he had 12 rules for promoting harmony within the church that he pastored. I'm not going to go through all 12, but here's some of them that I thought are still applicable to today and are still rooted in what Scripture itself is telling us here. One of them was to bear with and not magnify each other's infirmities. Bear with one another in love. The little things just let go. Not everything is worth fighting over. Avoid gossiping. If there's an issue, deal first with it in private before going public. This one I thought was interesting and convicting. If you have been offended, first think of how glorious it is to forgive before thinking of the justice that you'll receive. And finally, consider what we can do in the world and in the church when we are united in love. We are called to be a united people. And Paul here, and I'm skipping to my next point here, but 
this summons is not going to be, we can't do it for every single church gathered around. Paul is speaking to a local community. These qualities are the ones you're supposed to extend to those that Christ has placed you closest to. We need to maintain at all costs the unity we have at Marian Presbyterian. Being gentle with one another, being humble with one another, caring for one another, being patient with one another. These are things that we can do here. And Paul is saying if we do this, if we focus on this, then we're keeping and maintaining the bond of peace, but it promotes a beautiful uh, evangelistic moment for the church uh, in, the, in the community that we're surrounding. So as Marion fulfills these things, others in Marion should be seeing us and wondering, what is it about this church that is different? They're so united. They're so patient. They're so gentle. And to kind of emphasize that of when we're called to unity, you can think of ecumenicalism or unity in the gospel and think about different branches of Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist, I think here it would be important for us to remember to think small. So every Thanksgiving we have Black Friday, Amazon you know, has big deals, all the big stores have big deals, but what comes after Black Friday now? It's Shop Local Saturday. And they even have a little catch thing, Shop Small. Go visit small businesses in your communities to promote them and help them out. We, we are so connected to everyone right now. We can get so swept up in concerns from people thousands of miles away from us and feel like they're super pressing issues. And our hearts sometimes can be stirred by because they're either going through something horrific or tragic and you want to help, but they're so far away. And because we're so connected, we kind of get blind. Do you ever watch the local news? Do you ever focus on what's happening right in your own little community? Or is it you're so blinded by everything else happening in the world that you can't see those in need that are closest to you? So my, this call to unity should be focused on the local church first. And we're supposed to maintain, by the Spirit, a bond of peace. And if you remember from chapter 2, it's by the Spirit that we as the church are being built into a dwelling place for the Spirit. And what Paul's saying here, saying here is, even the way that we're built together is still the Spirit. It's the one that bonds us and holds us together. We're supposed to keep our eyes upon what the Spirit is doing as He promotes these virtues, these characteristics, these qualities in our lives. And we'll get to the things of how do we behave later. First, let's look at the beautiful picture of what Christian unity looks like in the Spirit. It's something so radically different from the world that I struggled with finding illustrations, like I said at the beginning, of how to start this sermon off. Because the world is not gentle. The world is not humble. The world is not patient. The world does not bear well with one another at all. But we as Christians are called to, and especially called to when the rest of the world says that's crazy. When the rest of the world ridicules us, for these virtues, we should be confident that we're living them out then, because these virtues come from Christ, and we saw what the world did to him. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, may we be ever mindful and ever desiring to grow in these qualities, that we would be stirred up in our energies of mind and heart and will to pursue them, that we would be a people known for humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to, to convict us of this and guide us in this and strengthen us toward that end. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.
All right, I would invite you to stand for the singing of hymn 356. I have never sang the song before, but I really liked it, and so let's try it.